Um, just once in a while I uh, get to preach on my favourite passages in the Bible. Usually it's uh, Ephesians 2 or Romans 8 about the love of God and that sort of thing, but tonight we get one of my other favourites about Ehud, the left-handed, but there you go. Uh, sometimes people get a bit surprised when they actually read the Bible and, uh, and see what's in it uh, and how they even know what the right word is. Uh, how much it reads better than any novel you're going to read. Uh, I remember reading a story about a uh, chaplain to the SAS soldiers, you know, the commandos and that sort of thing, and uh, uh, the guys weren't interested in talking to him very much, and he, he went in one day when they were all bored and said, I've got a great book for you, it's full of sex and violence and all that sort of thing, and they, they said, oh yeah, we'll read that, and he gave them each a Bible, so there you go. Maybe they turned to Judges 3, but uh, let's pray before we get this together. Our Heavenly Father... We do thank you that we have your scriptures in all their breadth, uh, that we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. We thank you for the way over these last few weeks we've been really challenged and encouraged by what you did in Old Testament times in the book of Judges. And we pray that that will happen again tonight. Help us not just to enjoy the story, but help us to learn the lessons you want us to see. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, leadership is a uh, hot topic at the moment. Uh, unless you've been sort of hidden away and locked in a room or something, you know something happened in Australia this week. We have a new Prime Minister. Uh, I brought it up at my gospel team on Friday night and one person said, oh, do we? Really? Yeah. And I, I thought, how, how have you managed that? Is there anyone here who I've just shared news with you that you didn't know? But anyway, don't raise your hand actually. Anyway, um, but for the last few years, it's really been sort of like deja vu all over again, hasn't it, in Australian politics? Uh, and I think that's why people get annoyed by it, because it just keeps happening the same sort of story on repeat. So, you know, they choose a leader, both parties, it's not one party, it's both parties. Uh, they choose a leader, he's popular for a while, but as soon as he starts to get unpopular, they get sick of him, and so they then vote him out, and then the new guy comes in, and then he's popular for a while, and they think he's the saviour, and then he gets unpopular, so they vote him out, it's just like on never ending, it's sort of like Neighbours, you know how Neighbours, I don't watch Neighbours, but when I see the ads, it's like you could watch it any time, and it'll be exactly the same story every week, well it's the same in Australian politics, and all week I've thought, how funny that we're looking at the book of Judges at church at the moment, because Judges is all about leadership, one, and more than that, uh, the book of Judges, the story of Israel in Judges is a lot like the story of Australian politics for the last 10 years. It's the same pattern over and over again on never-ending repeat. So what you get is Israel, God loves them, He shows this incredible grace to them, they remember Him for a while, but after a while, what do they do? They forget God and worship idols. And after God lets them do that for far too long, it seems, eventually He tires of it and He's angry at them, He judges them, for their idolatry and then after a while of that they cry out to God, sometimes they don't even cry out to God, He just shows them this incredible grace, He sends them a saviour and they go, God we're never going to forget you again, uh, we, 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 we trust you, we love you, we love what you've done for us and then after a few years what happens? They forget God and worship idols and it just goes round and round and round in circles and a bit like our politicians seem to come up with more and more outlandish variations, well in the same way the sin of Israel spirals worse and worse as time goes on. And so today we're looking at the first two stories. First three weeks, first uh, couple of chapters we've looked at have sort of been the introduction to the book of Judges. Today we're actually getting into the stories, the first two, Othniel and Ehud. But what I love about Judges is even though it's the same story on repeat, 
Each one, God tells us in a slightly different way with different things to pull out and learn for ourselves. And we're going to see different messages, different lessons to learn from both of these judges. So let's look at it together. Open your Bibles, chapter 3, verse 7, and we'll get the story of Othniel. And of course, it starts with Israel's sin, verse 7. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord their God and worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs. Now, as you read through Judges, that statement just becomes monotonous. You see that verse just repeated over and over again. But it's really important because do you see there what the sin was that God saw as so evil? Do you see it? It's not sexual immorality, though that was going on. Uh, It's not anger. It's not greed. The evil was, the thing that God abhorred more than anything else was that Israel stopped worshipping him and gave the glory that was due to him to idols. And that is the heart of sin. You see, the New Testament tells us that in Romans 1 and 2, it says they exchanged, all people, exchanged the glory of God and worshipped his creation instead. See, I think it's harder and harder to help people understand sin in our modern world. It's harder and harder to help people understand why they need Jesus people say, well, I'm pretty good. And in a world where morality is sort of fluid and where where we call evil good and good evil, people are confused and they say, well, why on earth did Jesus need to come and die for my sins? Well, here is what people need to understand. And here is what we need to understand. Sin is personal between us and God. And sin is relational between us and God. Sin is not just breaking God's laws. Sin is failing to give the one true God of the universe who created us and gave us everything good. It's failing to give him the honour and the glory that are his. And worse than that, it's giving that glory to another. You see, when we live as if the God who created us does not exist, and worse than that, When we take his glory for ourselves or give it to someone else, that grieves God. That angers God. And so verse 8, look at verse 8. It says, the Lord's anger burned against Israel. God will not tolerate his people worshipping other gods. And so in his anger, he sells them over to the tyranny of Cushan Rishathaim. It's a great name, isn't it? Uh, Literally though, his name means Cushan, the extra evil, or Cushan, the doubly evil. Now, I don't think his mum gave him that name. You know, I don't think his mum said, I'm going to call you Cushan. Maybe she was really horrible and she did, I don't know. That's what they came to call him. That's how awful he was. He was the Stalin or the Hitler or, or the Saddam Hussein of his day. And you see, this shows us God will not be mocked. And so he uses this evil man to judge his people. Now, it's really important to see here that this judgment of God is not final. I find that lots of Christians don't think enough about the difference in God's judgments. You see, there is a final judgment, hell, what we call God's retributive judgment. And on that last day, when Jesus returns, people will go to hell. People will face the eternal wrath of God. People like Cushan the extra evil and Israelites who refuse to turn back to God from worshipping idols and anyone who refuses to trust in Jesus. You see, that is the judgment at the end of time and it is final and it's awful. But then there is another judgment 
that God applies to His children. It's a judgment that's not final. It's what we call remedial. And its goal is to restore us, to get us to turn back to God, to get us to turn away from our sin and, and trust in Him. The New Testament calls it discipline and ties it to how God is our Father and we are His sons or His children. And the New Testament says, well, a loving father will not let their child continue to walk away from them. They won't. They'll discipline them. And sometimes that will involve pain. There is judgment in that sense. And the same way God disciplines His people sometimes, both as individuals and as a church. So look at Hebrews chapter 12. I put it on your outline. It says this. It says, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or faint when you are reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons, for what son is there that a father does not discipline? See, sometimes we suffer for no reason that we can see. Sometimes we face suffering just because we live in a broken, fallen, sinful world. But sometimes we suffer because of our sin. And whenever we face suffering, whenever we face difficult times, it should always make us reflect on ourselves. We should always ask, is there sin that needs repenting of in my life? And even if there's not, we need to let suffering drive us closer to the God who loves us, not further away. Because that sort of discipline from God is actually a sign of His love. And so if we go back to our story, come back to Judges, here it does just that because it drives Israel to cry out to God. It drives them back to God and God listens and God provides a saviour. So let's look at Othniel. Othniel is everything you expect God's saviour to be. I I was reading the news this morning and uh, they were saying Scott Morrison was destined to be the Prime Minister of Australia, which I thought was interesting because I hardly heard of him before this week. But, anyway, but you know, they were saying he comes from a political pedigree, he, he's come through the Liberal Party, all this sort of stuff. Well, that's Othniel. You might remember it back in chapter one, Othniel was the great general who, who went and took the town that, that Caleb said, Will someone take this town? He married Caleb's daughter. And Caleb is sort of like royalty in Israel. So it's sort of like if you're in America and you marry into the Kennedy family. It's like, well, you might be president one day because you've got the right pedigree. More than that, because of that, we know he's not one of the ones who has committed the sin that God has hated in Israel. What's the sin that they've kept doing over and over again? Marrying people from Canaan. So they worship their idols and that sort of thing. Well, that's not him. And more than that, he's from the tribe of Judah. And so, as we already saw a couple of weeks ago, it's from the tribe of Judah that God's leadership will come. So, the thing is, Othniel is the model leader. This is the judge who you judge every other judge against. That's Othniel. What's really interesting is, unlike the increasingly less impressive judges we meet after this, we're told next to nothing else about him. We're not told how he went into battle with the bone of an ox and beat a thousand people. We're not told about how he sneaked into an opposition camp and and killed everyone and tied their tails of foxes together and lit them alight. You know, we're not told these funny stories. You're told at other parts. We're just told enough to glean two lessons, okay? The first is, this might be the book of Judges, 
It might be Othniel who's the leader, but it's God who is the star. Okay, that's the first lesson. See, I wonder if that's why we're not told much about Othniel, what weapon he used, what tricks he played, and, and so on and so forth. Because in this first story, the message is really clear. God does the saving. Okay, so see, look at verse 9. It says, the Lord raised up Othniel. It wasn't like Othniel said, I'm going to step up. The Lord raised Othniel. Verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord came on him and he. The Lord handed over Cushan to him. Yes, God uses a human saviour and you cannot help but see how much Othniel points us forward to Jesus, the true line of the tribe of Judah who is to come. But it's God who raises up the judges and it's God who gives them their victories. So that's the first point, God is their saviour. But the second point is, what you see in this little story is the wonder of God's salvation. Just look at verse 11 there. God doesn't just defeat their enemies. Our translation says then, the land was peaceful. But the actual word is rest. It says God gave them rest. And if you know your Bible, that is such a theologically loaded word, isn't it? From the very beginning of the Bible, that has been God's aim for His people. To give them rest a place where they have no enemies and where they can experience the blessing of God and live under His rule free from everything that might distract them. And that's what He gives them here. You see, they had peace and rest to be what God wanted them to be, to be His people living under His loving rule, experiencing His abundant blessing. And go back to verse 11. Do you notice how long the period of rest is? Remember, the period of judgment was eight years of oppression the period of rest is 40 years. See, God is so gracious, isn't He? You know, I can't help but think, if we, in our sinfulness, were in God's position, we would say, you've abandoned me, you can have 40 years of judgment, then I might give you eight years of grace. But God says, eight years of judgment and 40 years of grace. But the thing is, they never experienced it permanently, did they? Because after 40 years, what happens? Othniel dies, and what do Israel do? They forget God and worship idols again. See, Israel only ever experienced short periods of God's rest, of God's blessing. That's why it's so wonderful when Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's not meaning, I'm going to make your life easy for you in this life. Because he then says, follow me and you'll have nowhere to lay your head. Take up your cross and and experience persecution with me. When he says that, Jesus is saying, come to me and you will find the fulfillment of all God's promises. Come and find God's rest in me. See, the New Testament tells us that we look forward to heaven, to the new creation. And that will be where we experience God's rest forever, where there are no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more grief no more anything like that. That is what God has in store for us. And for us, it's not eight years of suffering versus 40 years of rest. It's this life, which is like a grain of sand, versus all of eternity. That's the point of Romans 8, 18. Look at it on your outline. I've printed it there on the bottom of the first column. It says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 
So the real first lesson I want you to see from Othniel's story is that our God is wonderful and gracious. That's what I want you to see. But back to our story. Come with me. At the end of verse 11, Othniel dies. Straight away, verse 12, the Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight and the cycle starts again. But this time it's Eglon, the king of Moab, who oppresses them for 18 years. It's getting worse. But again, God raises up a saviour, Ehud, son of Gira. Who here teaches kids' church, is involved in kids' church on a Sunday morning? There's more than that, but anyway, they might have all gone home today because it's been such a long day. No. Uh, if you teach kids' church, the book of Judges is great. If you've got boys in your kids' church class, the book of Judges is great. And this is, I reckon, the best story in the whole book of Judges. It's my favourite. Uh, it has everything. It has espionage. It has comedy. And I loved it how some people actually were laughing during the Bible reading. In the in morning congregations, people were going, oh, you shouldn't laugh in church. I won't laugh. During it's a really funny story. It's meant, you're meant to laugh at this. It's got, every, I mean, Eglon, the fat king whose insides come out. What little boy doesn't have a giggle at that? Yeah, you know, what little girl too, for that matter. My Sunday school career, we called it Sunday school then, was a little bit checkered, uh, shall we say. <laughs> Uh, I often think of poor Miss Webb. She was an elderly lady in Brisbane. We, we, at the church, my parents dragged me along to against my will. Uh, there, weren't, there wasn't an evening congregation like this. There weren't people to teach kids' church. And so we had uh, an elderly lady faithfully serving, teaching us in Sunday school each week. I used to think she was in like her 80s or 90s. She was probably only 50 or 60, you know what I mean? But when you're, when you're little, you think someone's really old. But uh, there are only two boys in the class, I won't mean, in case he ever listens to the podcast, I won't mention the other boy's name, and me, uh, and there were other girls, but the two boys, we were awful, uh, and I sometimes think, what would Miss Webb say if she saw me now, you know, preaching the gospel? Uh, I think she'd be amazed, she's long gone to be with the Lord, but I think she'd be encouraged, uh, but I sometimes think she would be amazed at the miraculous nature of our God. Uh, but I actually, you know, you have these memories... I actually remember us doing the story of Ehud with Miss Webb in about year four Sunday school. I remember it. And uh, what I remember in particular was the two of us, me and the other boy, fighting over who got to be Ehud and who had to be Eglon. And the other guy, he used a master stroke. He said, well, I'm left-handed. And I wasn't smart enough to say, but how come you're always colouring in with your right hand every other week? And uh, he got to be Ehud, at least I tell myself that. I hope it wasn't that Miss Webb thought I was more like Eglon, but <laughs> anyway. Uh, this is one of the great stories, isn't it? You know, and it's told so well. E Ehud uses his left-handedness to mount his espionage operation. And he makes a special sword that doesn't have the cross part on it, you know, that part. That's how it can go right into Eglon. And he straps it inside his clothes, down his leg to pull out. And he builds Eglon's trust by bringing the tribute and not doing anything bad, going away and then coming back and saying, and it's a really clever play on words you miss in the English, he says, I've got something special for you. You see? We, our translators, they always mess around with it. They say, oh, I've got a secret message for you, something like that. No, it says, I've got something special for you, which I love. He's not even lying. Uh, <laughs> and then he escapes using all his deceptiveness and then his assassination seems to embolden all of Israel and they raise up and they kill the Moabites 
and, and they're free from their oppression. And again, the point is God has saved them through the man he has raised up. And again, God gives his people rest. And just like last time, where it was 8 and 40, this time, look at it, 18, and what is it in verse 30? 80 years of rest. It's a great story, isn't it? Is it any wonder I wanted to be Ehud and not Eglon? But you've got to ask, why is it included with all these details? You should always ask that question. Why did God put this story in with all those little details, with all its fullness and all its humour? I think there's two lessons I want to draw out. And the first is this. This story is meant to be funny. And it's meant to ridicule Eglon. You might have felt guilty, those people who were having a little snigger while the Bible reading went on later on. You shouldn't be. Uh, you were meant to laugh when the sword goes into his fat tummy. Not because God is against his four thin people or something like that. You're meant to laugh because Eglon has grown fat on tyranny. Why is he so fat? It's because every other nation from around had to bring them all their food while they starved and he pigged out. And you're meant to laugh when the fat rolls over and think, you've got what's coming to you, Eglon. You're meant to laugh when his insides fall out, which is actually a euphemism for his bowels opening up. Our Bible translators think we're very tender and couldn't handle things like that. But it's saying, it stank. And that's why you're meant to laugh when his servants come and the doors lock and they say, he must be on the toilet. Because that's what they're smelling. It's meant, you're meant to laugh about it. Some Bible commentators spend pages and pages trying to say, oh, well, you shouldn't laugh because God wouldn't mock. God is mocking Eglon. It's meant to be funny because God does laugh in a really scary way at humans who are evil enough to ignore him and abuse his people. See, that's why God mocks Eglon. And if you know your Bible, this is Psalm 2 in action. Have a look, I've put some of Psalm 2 on your outline. Psalm 2 says this, it says, Why do the nations rebel and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And then it says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. See, Eglon is one of those rulers who plots in vain. He's one of those kings of the earth who conspire together against the Lord and his people. And what does Psalm 2 say about God's reaction? It says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. See, I think this is meant to remind us that evil tyrants are no match for God. It's meant to remind us that even if it seems like this world is sort of spinning out of control and evil is winning and God is being mocked, and opposed and God's people are struggling, God is seated on his throne and God wins. See, don't be afraid to laugh at Eglon and rejoice at his downfall. God does. Second and final lesson goes back to who God chose to be his saviour. The little snippets we're given about Ehud are not just there for the sake of a good story. It was obvious why Othniel was right for the job. He was the strong general from the tribe of Judah. But Ehud was a Benjaminite. And Benjamin was the smallest and most insignificant tribe in all of Israel. 
And more than that, they're only mentioned so far in the Bible, they're only mentioned of what Benjamin's been doing is back in chapter 1, when Judah came and smashed Jerusalem and said, Benjamin, there it is for you. And Benjamin said, oh, we couldn't possibly take Jerusalem because there's people living there and they might fight with us. And it's really not hard to imagine people saying when Ehud stood up, Benjamin, has anything good ever come from Benjamin? Worse than that, he was left-handed. Who here is left-handed? I'm not. But there you go. You, you be proud of your left-handedness. But in the ancient world, that was seen as a, a curse, uh, as a weakness, a, as an affliction. And in fact, literally, it doesn't say he was left-handed. It says his right hand was bound up. It says his right hand was restricted. Now, that could be just how they say left-handed, or it could mean he had a disability. He had a deformed right hand. And you see, I think it's really interesting as you look at it. It says God raised him up to be the judge, but Israel didn't actually follow him till after he came back. Do you notice that? It was only after he came back, having killed Eglon, that right at the end of the story, he says, follow me, and they followed him. Before that, I wonder if actually they said, hey, the left-handed guy from Benjamin wants to go and we'll let him go. What does it matter if he doesn't come back? You see, Eglon is an unlikely saviour. He's not who you would choose. He is weak, he is insignificant, he looks like a fool, but he's the one who God uses to defeat his enemies and save his people. But isn't that how God works? And we read it in our New Testament reading before from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. What did it say? It said, God uses the weak things to shame the strong. God uses the foolish things to shame the wise. And you see, just like Ehud, Jesus was seen as weak and foolish. When he came, people said, well, what, what good ever comes from Galilee? And then when he died, people said, look at that, he's a weak fool. Come and get down off the cross, Jesus, if you really are the Son of God. And then people said, how could the death of one man ever pay for the sins of all of humanity? What weakness what foolishness, yet that is how God saves his people. I love how Judges puts Othniel and Ehud both together because they both point to Jesus. Othniel had all the pedigree and for those who knew, so did Jesus. He was descended from David, born in Bethlehem. He was the lion of the tribe of Judah and yet like Ehud, people thought Jesus was unlikely and even weak and foolish. He was from a poor family in a forgotten backwater. He was the crucified weakling. Yet to those who are called, those who see him properly, Jesus is God's power and God's wisdom. And so more than anything else tonight, I want you to make sure that you know God's weak saviour. I want you to make sure that you trust in Jesus, who in his weakness was saving you. The one who was strong became weak so that he could die to pay the price for your sins. And the wonderful thing is that God continues to use the weak things of this world to shame the wise. He uses us with all our failings and all our weakness. Don't ever be proud in your service. Don't be boastful. Don't despair if the world writes you off as foolish and weak and writes off your faith as foolish and weak because God uses the weak to shame the strong. 
We have some incredibly gifted people here at church. I'm not going to point you out because I don't want you to become proud and arrogant. Uh, but if you don't mind me saying, most of us are not internationally renowned successes. Most of us are not even St George area renowned successes. But that's the point. That's who God uses. Because worldly success stories are often proud and arrogant and often say, I want the glory rather than give it to God. And so, no, God uses humble, normal, weak human beings like us. So don't ever be tempted to think that you are not gifted enough to serve. Don't ever be tempted to think you are not gifted enough to tell people about Jesus. And don't ever write other people off. Don't just look for the people who the world thinks are impressive. Help people, help one another in our weakness to use the gifts God has given us to see what God can do through us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Judges that even though it was written 3,000 years ago, speaks still today to us. And Father, we thank you that you are the God who saves. But we thank you also for our weak and unlikely Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came in weakness, who died the death of a sinner, so that we might know your forgiveness. And Father, use us in our weakness to continue to point people to Christ. And we pray this in His name. Amen.